the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 294 for October 26th, Tuesday, 2010. Greetings, folks! Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you... Help write the agenda. You send in your questions. You send in your tips. You ask us for help. We share as much as we possibly can about the Mac, that is. And uh, and we do it and bring it to you right here in uh, in this beautiful format called the podcast. From Durham, New Hampshire, I am Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. And somebody turned up the heat, man. It is warm. I don't know today. if it's just me or you or... Uh... Yeah, and I just pull. Of course, I pulled the AC out of the upstairs window, so of course it has to. Oh, it's get your fault. To, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, world. I'm so, sorry. Hey, anyways, stuff Dave. works out okay. The first year that uh, we were back in Connecticut after living in Texas, uh, we had a horrible snow. I couldn't buy a snowblower to save my life. The next year, of course, I bought one. I bought the biggest honking snowblower you could get with treads and everything. I mean, this thing is like a tank. And of course, it didn't snow, you know, significantly for two years. And my neighbors all thanked me. They thought it was fantastic that I blew like, you know, 1500 bucks on this snowblower. And uh, and so that made it not snow. So everybody was cool about it. Uh, all right. Let's dive. Let's dive. Uh, let's dive right in and let's do let's go to Doug. Doug has a very interesting and timely question. Yes. Doug writes. This last week, I installed the new iLife 11 suite. So far, I am liking the programs and have made some trailers with the kids. The one thing that's troubling me is that the in-application help is not working. If I choose help from the menu bar for either iMovie or iPhoto, I only get a blank window. I'm not sure of my next step to troubleshoot. Delete some plist files. If so, which ones? Help! All right, John, go. I'm going to go because Dave... I actually had this problem last night. I actually tweeted a, a screenshot to my uh, my uh, beloved followers saying um, Apple gets uh, an A for brevity, but an F for content in their iPhoto 11 help. I've been using iPhoto 11 because I've been using iPhoto 11. And it's really nice. There, there's some uh, you know little tweaks here and there, uh, which I think make the editing easier. It's probably snappier. They had to you know redo the photo library and all that, which, uh, by the way, uh, results in a huge uh, potentially huge time machine backup. So I'm like 500. What? Yeah. But anyways, I did find an article online that talks about the help viewer, Dave. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah so let me get into this. So how so, do you so get me, help? Let me ask you a, a question here, John, and, and, and it's going to preempt your question, but <sighs> yours, is, yours is actually more important. Well, whatever. I'm going to ask my question anyway. And that is, were you having trouble with the help files only in iLife 11 or were you having trouble seeing help files system wide? Because that would have been my question for Doug. Yes. Oh, which question am I answering? Uh, the question is, it was a problem with just iLife. Okay. Now, we, we have to dig in a little bit here in that. How do you get help in Mac OS 10? And for the most part, if everybody plays nice, uh, Apple has a thing called the uh, Mac OS X Help Viewer. It's buried in, I think, well, one of the uh, application support folders. I don't have the exact path, but it's a program that parses HTML-like pages. And as far as I can tell, the way that it works is that the first time you fire it up and it needs to get some help, it's going to try. Now, some applications include help within them. So I read into this a little bit, and there actually was an article that went into some detail of how this works. So there's two ways to do this. You could either 
have it embedded in the application or it can be out in the big wide world somewhere. Okay. And, uh, so what I believe happens, because actually little snitch comes up sometimes using the help viewer, is that they'll go out and if there's nothing there, they're going to go out and say, hey, is there any help for this application? And when they do, Dave, and this should uh, set off a little alarm for you, um, it'll cache it. Oh. oh. So, in answer to the question, should I whack some plist files? The answer is yes, that's part of the problem. And here's what I did. So, let me, let me bring up exactly here. So, so, there were two places that I had to go, Dave, and... and Give me a moment so I can bring up. I want to give the exact. Uh, give me one more moment. Okay, Sorry. here we go. Solved. Do you need so, another moment? Nope. Okay. I'm done. So here's what I did. So the uh, article suggested to, to whack things in a couple of places. So the first one that caught my eye is, oh, caches. You know, caches always get screwed up. And I'm not sure if Onyx will specifically get rid of these caches. But if you want to get rid of them on your own, Dave. Uh, where you go would be your home folder slash library slash caches. There's just a whole boatload of caches in there. And you're going to see some. They're probably going to be a folder. They're going to be com.apple.help. Either that on its own or something after it. I think I saw okay. two or three folders in there. So that was my first step. I'm like, you know, it's probably a corrupted cache. So uh, take all those, put them in the trash, empty the trash. Tried it again. No dice. Oh. But... So the second thing, so not only is there a caches folder, Dave, but if you go to your home folder, library, preferences, there are going to be preference files with, you guessed it, com.apple.help, something. And I think I saw three of them. Two okay. were fairly recent and one was kind of old. Okay. And what I suspect is that there was something old and crusty in one of those prep files. And once, so what I did is I threw all those out. And when I tried to empty the trash, then I got a warning saying a file was in use. I'm like, oh, this is good. Right. Because I think I've stumbled across. So what I did after that was, of course, I just did a simple logout that you could also do a restart. Sure. Restarted the machine. Then I could empty the trash because whatever file in question was not being used anymore. And then went to iPhoto, brought up the help viewer. And when I tried to get the help, instead of just being presented. So before what would happen is you would see iPhoto 11 help in the title bar. And then you just have a blank window. What happened this time is I saw a little spinny thing, you know, a little spinning progress wheel. As it and then it said the help. Yep. And then it said something to the effect, I didn't get the exact wording, I should have got a screenshot, but it said um, downloading help information. Uh -huh. So I think the way it works is that for a lot of help files, if you don't include it in the app, which I say you probably shouldn't, this help utility will reach out over the web and grab it and then cache it. And I think what happened is it just got screwed up or the installer, uh, the, the iPhoto installer or the iLife 11 installer just didn't do its job right. Got it. So, because I was disappointed, I'm like, where's the help? I mean, it was just nothing. It didn't even say, you know, there's nothing here or I can't get out to the web. It just, it just did nothing. So well, that's all that, there for me. Hopefully that helps, Doug. And hopefully it helps uh, a lot of you out there, because it seems like if 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 Doug and, and John both ran into this, my guess is uh, you are not the only ones. So that's fantastic. Awesome. All right. We want to talk about our first sponsor for the show, which is Audio Engine at AudioEngineUSA.com. Today, we're talking about something new from them. They have uh, long been making powered speakers, that is, speakers with amplifiers inside them. This, of course, means that not only are they good at making speakers, but they're also good at making amplifiers. And they had to get good at making both, and then they baked them into one design. Today, we're talking about their new desktop audio amplifier, the Audio Engine N22. And what this is, is this is a standalone amplifier built to sit between your computer and 
your speakers if you have passive speakers. Now, some of you may have a need for this and not even realize it. You might have some decent uh, what I would call bookshelf speakers that you had with like an old stereo system, maybe packed away in your closet or something. Well, this amp is built to hook your computer up to speakers like that. Now, you've got to get close on the uh, power output. This this amplifier will do 40 watts per channel. So it's an 80 watt amplifier because it will power two channels. But uh, but if you've got something like that, then this is the way to get those speakers working with your Mac. Great little way to take those old passive speakers that you have and uh, and get them to work. These are one ninety nine or the amplifier rather is one ninety nine. Of course, it qualifies for our ten uh, percent uh, off coupon, of course, which is uh, oh, man. And, you know, I feel terrible about this because I don't remember our 10 percent off coupon, John, off the top of my head. And I always remember it. Uh, and yet today I do not, but I will find it while we talk here. Uh, so the N22s, again, it's two channels, 40 Watts a piece. It's an 80 watt amplifier. It looks really cool. It's a, uh, it's a rectangular box. It's got a blue light on it. It has a headphone jack on the front. Uh, it's got a volume knob on the front and then on the back, you've got all, all sorts of cool stuff. You've got the inputs that can come from the computer, either the little mini jack or RCA inputs. And then they have uh, line outs if you want to go to uh, another set of speakers. And then you've got your regular speaker connectors to go out to your speakers. It also has USB power on the back of it. So you could power your iPod or your airport express with these. No, uh, you power your iPod with them. The airport express course has to be plugged in. Sorry, we're confusing the two products here. Uh, and the uh, and you plug your iPod in, power it with USB power, plug the cable from the iPod into the input on the speaker jack or on the amplifier jack, and then out it goes to the speakers. The coupon, wow, Dave. The coupon oh. is MGG10. It's MGGTEN, which gets you 10% off. So it's $199 from AudioEngineUSA.com, and then you can get it for 10% off. Of course, you can try it with their 30-day free audition uh, if you can if you don't like Anything you get from them, you have 30 days to send it back for a full refund. So that's AudioEngineUSA.com. Yes, John, you were going to ask something. Well, no, I was going to tell you that the coupon code is MGG10. Hey, thanks for you found it. catching my... I, I, I was, I was <laughs> scurrying about trying to find it while you were uh, describing all of the... Uh, all of the features. Fantastic. I think small for all of that stuff, it, it yep. looks pretty, uh, pretty compact, too. Yep. And if you want to use it with their speakers, they actually do sell for uh, $249. They sell their P4s, which are their passive speakers that look a lot like the A5s that we've talked about before. So we'll be talking about this more uh, as, uh, as time goes on, of course. But uh, but wanted to tell you about that. That's AudioEngineUSA.com, our first sponsor. And now we move on to Will. Will says... Uh, and Will actually posted this in the Mac Geek Gab Crew forums over at uh, MacObserver.com. And we've got a great group over there. I'm in there answering questions, but all, all you folks are out there answering things, too. Will posted, I use my MacBook in various places, but at work, it sees at least 10 wireless networks. iStumbler shows around 30. The slightly annoying thing is that it tries to join the wrong network, and I have to select the correct one from the airport dropdown. Is there a way I can set it to only try joining the preferred one or ignoring ones that I specify? 
And this is uh, what I'll call a Mac Geek Gab reprise because we've we've had this question before in different ways, but uh, but the solution mm-hmm. comes around. So, yeah, well, it's easy, Dave. The answer is yes and no. Yeah, yes and <laughs> yes and not, any not really. By, yeah, yes and not really. All right. So for the yes answer, what you're going to do is you're going to go into system preferences. You're going to go into network. You're going to highlight airport. And then I believe you got to choose advanced. And mm-hmm. then in there, you will see uh, a list of all the airport networks that your machine has ever joined. There's two things you can do with this list. Well, you may. You may. If you. Right. That's right. In, in his case, you almost certainly. In Will's case, you almost certainly will. But uh, in this with this list, you can do two things. Number one, you can remove things from it. And if you remove something from this then the computer will no longer automatically join that network. Number two, you can reorder this list so that your preferred network is at the top and you reorder it simply by dragging. It's not the most intuitive thing in the world, but you just, it, 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 in that maybe it's over intuitive, but right. But you grab it and you drag it up to the top and you're good to go. So that's, that's, that's my thoughts on it. John, the only reason I interjected Dave was because there is a checkbox there and I do believe it's checked by default, though I could be mistaken. It's happened before, Yep. but there is a box. That's why I was saying maybe when you, when you stated there should be a list of things. Sure. And again, if this box is checked by default, which I believe it is, there is a checkbox saying, remember networks, this computer has joined. What does that mean? Well, that means it's going to populate that list that Dave just talked about. Right. And that's the if, only way to populate that list. You cannot manually add something or can you? Well, I think there's a plus sign in that list. There is. What okay. So, when you- yeah. Okay. If there's a plus sign there, then you can manually add things. Forget what I just said. Uh, John's John's. It sounds like John has left us. Okay. No, He's no, back. no, I'm back. All right. No, I basically did that. I, I, I clicked on the plus sign and it says enter name of the network. It has the security settings, show networks. That's right. That's right. Stuff like that. So you can certainly do it manually, but but this is nice. And I think it probably should be on if you're traveling in a new area and just don't want to go through the pain that he's going through. Now, the, the, the other question, though, is there any way to ignore? And as far as I know, there's no way to explicitly ignore, but by setting up the priority and populating that list, that's like a negative ignore. You're paying special attention versus, right. versus ignoring. But, but to answer that question, there is no way to say, I do not want to connect to the space station that I know of, Dave. Right. You can't create a blacklist. That, that's right. But by not having it in that list, the, your computer will not connect to it by chance. If, if, if the network's not in that list, the computer's not just going to go and grab the connection. The, uh, you'd have to manually select it from the airport pull down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, cool. Moving on to Johnny. Something else in the MGG reprise category, but a good one to go through. Johnny writes, recently, several of my family changed their email addresses. Unfortunately, the new addresses are very close to the old ones. I've changed their address book info, but the old email addresses pop up along with the new ones in the autofill on my Mac. I've looked around and there doesn't seem to be a simple way to remove the old ones from autofill. I reset the keyboard dictionary, but this had no effect. Suggestions appreciated. Okay, Uh, so we're actually there's two of these that I think Johnny's referring to here. It wasn't entirely clear in the email, but uh, this happens both on the Mac and on the iPhone. So we're going to talk about the Mac first. Because it's the more positive part of the conversation. And we are the Mac Geek Cab, so we'll, we'll prioritize that here. Uh, to remove these from the mail application on your Mac is fairly simple. You go into mail, 
You go to the window menu and you choose previous recipients. Uh, and then you'll start seeing all of these listed out there. You can highlight the old addresses and you can select multiples either by holding down the shift key to select a group or the command key to individually pick multiples. And then just click the little button in the left that says remove from list and out they go. That's the end of it. And you won't have them coming up for your autofill anymore. Unfortunately, on the iPhone or iPad or various iDevices that you might have, this is not possible. Editing this list is uh, is simply a function that has not yet been added to uh, to iOS. And the only way to 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 remove things from this list, of, as we talked about before, <laughs> is to totally wipe the thing and and not restore it from a backup. So not sure how worthy that is, uh, but uh, but we mentioned it anyway. So, yes, solvable on the Mac. No, not easily solvable on the iPhone. <laughs> So they just have to add the window menu to the uh, mail application <laughs> on the iDevices. That's all it's going to take. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of lame because that, that that is a common. I mean, you you yeah. would think that if you kind of say, you know, this really isn't important to me anymore. You know, here's it. here's the thing, John. I don't think that menu existed in the first version of mail app. I certainly could be wrong. Of course, I didn't look for it until probably the third version I, of mail app. Right. I didn't even know that was there. I, the, like, the, the, you your your mention of it. Years. Well, I haven't had a need to. It, it always seems to be getting uh, when I start typing an address, whether it be the name of someone or part of their email address, it, it seems to be pretty, it zeroes in pretty quickly. And I don't get right. overwhelmed by all these you know stale entries. But I guess over time. Yeah, that certainly could happen. So. Sure. Sure. So. uh and, and I don't think this was there in the first version of mail. If it wasn't, then then there's hope for us on the iPhone because it means that perhaps someone at Apple will get sick of this, too, and say, hey, we got to put in a facility for, you know, just even clearing in all of it out. Just, you know, some button in the settings that says wipe out my old addresses. And that's all I need. You know, just don't even need to let me edit it if you you know want to protect me from myself as it as the case may be. Apple's good at that. All right. Larry has a question which will be part MGG reprise and part new information. Larry writes, I have a question about iTunes that Apple support can't answer. And people on the support boards respond with an en masse, huh? And wonder why the heck I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do. Here's the deal. In iTunes, I subscribe to various podcasts. I'm not the kind of user that syncs my iPod with iTunes. I just randomly drag, drag things into the iPod and listen on the go. Also, I only listen to my podcasts on my iPod. I do have a life and don't sit at the computer all day long listening. If I have not listened to a subscribe to podcast for a while, when I return to iTunes and look at my podcast, they will have a little black circle with an exclamation point next to it that says I have not listened to the podcast for a while. So it has stopped updating. Is there a way to inform iTunes to stop being so presumptuous and just keep all updating all my podcasts, whether I have listened or not? What happens is occasionally the podcasts that I did not get are no longer visible at iTunes. Okay. Uh, so this has to be one of the top complaints about iTunes that they haven't yet addressed, Dave, because <laughs> I hear so many people talk about it and it's making this assumption that I don't think is valid, that if you don't listen means you're not interested. I, I wish they just have a checkbox to modify that. Right. It's, it's not necessarily an incorrect assumption, but it's making it unilaterally is, is, uh, is a failure. I, I, mm -hmm. I fall into the same category. I listen to podcasts sporadically. There's certain things that I do. And when I do them, I listen to podcasts, but this does not happen on a regular basis for me. So I, I run into the same issue with, with certain shows. 
what I do is I run a, a an Apple script from DougScripts.com called uh, Update Expired Podcasts. And you put this out there and you run it. And when you run it, it goes through and tells iTunes, yeah, go and clear all these out and, you know, clear all those exclamation points out and, and update everything. That That's great. But you have to run the script yourself. Now, you could use something hmm. uh, like iCal, right? iCal lets you schedule, instead of having an alarm go off at a certain time for an event, uh, iCal lets you run an Apple script. So you could tell Ooh, iCal to run this, right? You could tell iCal to run this Apple script daily or, or weekly or whatever it would take to, to manage this for you. So, so that's kind of the, the easiest way. Oh, I like that. Because you know how I love iCal. Now, of course, you could do something like um, water or something that lets you change startup scripts, but that that's getting a bit complex. I, I, I like what you're suggesting. Maybe a weekly yeah. iCal event that says run this Apple script would be enough to yep. keep it from doing that. Because you know it has to be digging in a prep file somewhere to change this behavior. So hopefully Apple will, will put it in the next version of iTunes. Yeah, good luck. Uh, so then... But but that doesn't actually solve your your problem, Larry. I mean, you you asked for how do I keep it to from you know how do I keep it from expiring these, and I have an interesting suggestion for you, and and this suggestion anybody else who's listening here who ha, who doesn't have this problem, pay attention here because you do listen to podcasts clearly, uh, and what I'm about to talk about is something my brother came up with that is a creative solution to a lot of different problems. So. Here's what I'm going to suggest to Larry, but follow along. Go to google.com slash reader, R-E-A-D-E-R. This is Google's online RSS reader interface. So now go there. And if you have a Google account, you'll log in. If you don't set up an existing account or use your Gmail account or whatever. And then inside reader, create a folder and call it podcasts or whatever you want. But for our purposes, I'm going to refer to it as your podcast folder inside that folder. Then subscribe to the feeds of all of your favorite podcasts. Okay. And you could uh, create subfolders if you really want, but, but, you know, just subscribe to all your podcasts. Now, uh, click the email, click the email, a link page and email. Uh, uh, sorry, wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm skipping my steps here because I've written these out. So then go into settings, folders and tags so that you click on the settings button. And then there's a tab called folders and tags. And this is in Google reader on the web. And click the word private on the line of your podcast folder to change it to public. You need to make this folder public for what we're going to do. Then click the email a link page and email a link to of the of this folder to yourself. Uh, there's other ways to get this, but this is an easy way to do it. Then inside that email, you'll see a link behind the subscribe to a feed of my podcast items. Copy that link into iTunes and and go or copy that link and then go into iTunes, go to the uh, uh, and I think it's in the advanced menu, John. You're going to have to help me on this. That sounds right. I, yeah. I will. OK, advanced and then choose subscribe to podcast and paste that URL in there. Now, iTunes is going to subscribe to this as one podcast. You could do this with multiples. But the idea is if you have all of your podcasts in this folder and reader, you're going to have listened to at least one of them. And that's going to keep iTunes updating the whole thing. The cool part is that you can also use other RSS readers or other devices. You can get an RSS reader for your iPhone. 
other ways of accessing these podcasts that are just out there. Uh, and it's a pretty cool thing. So, so I, I think that might solve your problem, Larry, but, uh, really, Hmm. Why wouldn't that solve Larry's problem? It would definitely <sighs> solve his problem. As long as so, so what, what you're creating is a subscription to something. Yes, you're creating a subscription to something. But as long as he has listened to one episode of one podcast, then the whole thing will keep updating because it is one subscription. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's kind of cascading this because Correct. all right, because you're including or, all right, because yeah, I've noticed that the, the things will expire after whatever is, is it a week or a couple of weeks? Okay. No, I, I just see that that's in step two. Okay. Yes. Got yes. it. Yeah. You're, yeah. You're subscribing to one thing, but it, again, it, it kind of aggregates all of this together and it's uh, it's an interesting, interesting solution. Wow. My brother started telling me about it because he's a, he's a Google guy. He doesn't work for Google, but uh, but he's got an Android phone. And and so he's always constantly thinking uh, he's a Mac guy, but he's got an Android phone because he's a Verizon dude. And he's always thinking of ways to to get everything into the Google system so that he can then access it with his Android devices. And it and, you know, usually typically things things are smoother. So that that was his answer, because, yeah, like me, he doesn't listen to podcasts every Mm -hmm. day on a set schedule. He kind of listens, you know, when he when he uh, and. And he's a Hamilton, which, well, that's all I'm going to say about that. That's but he, he thinks much. about things in a slightly different. <laughs> Just kidding. That's a compliment, Dave, by the way. And I, also I, to uh, your brother. I take that as a compliment. Thank you, my friend. Yes. Yeah. That, what a roundabout way to do that. I know. I know. When he started explaining it to me, it was like, whoa, dude. <laughs> okay. You know. Serious magic. Yeah. But it was a good idea. You know. So. All right. All right. Uh, I do want to talk about our second sponsor here. So we stay on schedule here. Uh, and it is a new sponsor. Lots of new stuff to talk about today. It is GoDaddy. So technically not a new sponsor. Long, long, long time listeners to the podcast will remember that GoDaddy sponsored us early, early on during the first year of Mac Geekab. And they are back and we're happy to have them. Mm, welcome back. Yeah. So GoDaddy has a couple of things uh, that we can talk about here. The first is... Real simple. GoDaddy is first and foremost a domain registrar. And what that means is that you can go there to register your domain names and keep a, uh, a they've got a great little domain management system where you can manage all your domain names right from there. Uh, we, of course, have a coupon code for that. And that lets you get .com domains for $7.49. And that is MacGab, M-A-C-G-A-B 749. So that's $7.49. They've also got web hosting there. Uh, there's a lot of people out there using them as their web host. And uh, and you can get, uh, they've got 99% uptime, free 24-7 support, no annual commitment. And uh, one of the hosting plans they have is their Mac OS X cloud server stuff. So you can even host on a Mac OS X server in the cloud at GoDaddy. Uh, and you can get 15% off that with the coupon MacGab15. So if you're thinking about doing any sort of Mac OS 10 server stuff, but you didn't want to implement locally and you want something that's in a data center that's probably more reliable than your house, uh, GoDaddy is the place to go. So again, $7.49.coms for Matt using the coupon code MacGab749. And then, of course, 15% off their Mac OS 10 cloud server plans 
with MacGab15. Go ahead and check them out. Uh, of course, everything is at GoDaddy.com, and we are happy to uh, to see them come back. Do you have anything to uh, any question? You you said something while I was reading that there, John. Is there any uh, any questions you got? No. Okay. No, I think we're uh, we're all you know. I I it's it's great. That's what I was saying. Welcome back, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I happily use GoDaddy for all of my domains, uh, and I'm happy to have the coupon because to be brutally honest i'm going to use it too uh in fact i've got a bunch of domains that are that are due to can you do that yeah i can do that of course why not <laughs> it's our coupon code we can share it we can use it so we share it with you mac gab 749 that's that's Excellent. the one i'll use so all right uh and of course godaddy.com i think i said that but just in case derek writes hello oh great masters of mac wizardry that's a good way to start. It sure is. I've worked some Google food, checked the TMO website, and have not come up with a solution to this problem. I'm doing this for a friend who is a recent switcher. My question, simply stated, is this. How does he, or anyone, move his iTunes library, including metadata, and other files from his Windows partition to his Mac partition? To elaborate, he recently switched to a Mac, but a limited number of programs he needs to use at work require Windows. He's got a MacBook Pro 13-inch running the latest Snow Leopard edition. He uses uh, VMware Fusion to run Windows. When he first had the Mac set up, he stupidly transferred his iTunes library from his old Windows machine to his Windows partition inside VMware Fusion. He now sees the error of his ways and wants to repent for his sins and put his iTunes library where it rightly goes native on his Mac. There doesn't seem to be a simple way to transfer the data from the FAT32 partitions to the Mac OS X extended journaled partition, unless I'm being stupid, which has happened once before. Any assistance with this would be greatly appreciated. Okay, so let's talk about this in a general sense, I, and, then, and then we'll add a specific thing about uh, how to do this. For yeah, because I want to start at a high level, Dave, and, and I actually did this again while you were talking in the background. I was doing something. And you may be asking what As were you doing, John? <laughs> uh, you know, I've stopped asking what you were doing in the background a long time ago. So. <laughs> but anyways, so while you were talking, I started up my uh, MacBook Pro yep. and ran VMware. Yep. Uh, I don't know which version I got here. Fusion 3, I think it is. But anyways, running XP because I'm not really ready to make a leap yet to, okay. you know. <laughs> but anyways, and uh, so one question I would have, Dave, because I think he mentioned this and uh, I was just curious why he said this. But one question that came into my mind, and you and I talked about this in the pre-show, was can't you just go in your folder that has your iTunes stuff and just copy that over? And he seems to have indicated that that was a problem, because if I look at at least my Windows XP that has iTunes installed, Dave, yep. now they have a similar folder structure, but they do have within Correct. your My Documents folder, within that there's something called My Music, and then within that is something called iTunes. And within that folder, Dave, as far as I can tell, the contents of that, comparing what I see on my XP screen to what I see on another machine I have here, looks to be identical. And that there's an XML file, there's a library, iTunes, you know, some proprietary things and some XML stuff. And then a music folder that uh, allegedly I think would have all your music. So why is that an open question? Why is that not a good idea? Or is that a good idea? If you want to bring everything from... Yep. One platform to the other, why not just find the right place or find the iTunes folder, which is going to be in a folder called music or something, and just drag that over? That's ex In fact, that's exactly 
the way to do it. I, I, really? I, will, I will preface what I'm about to tell you with the caveat that I have not tried this simply because I have not, I haven't had an occasion where this would, this would have uh, been necessary. Cause it looks like they thought, yeah. gee, why don't we maintain the same file and directory structure on both systems? Although it's in a, you know, slightly different folder. Sure. Once you're in the iTunes folder, to me, it looks identical. Yeah. And it is uh, at least based on everything I've read on online. I have not seen anyone report that this hasn't worked. So the trick is though, there's a couple of things you want to do to prep yourself mm-hmm. for a successful migration. Number one, on the Windows side, in iTunes, inside the app, go to Preferences, Advanced, and check the Keep iTunes Media Folder Organized and the Copy Files to iTunes Media Folder when adding to library boxes. This way, we know that all of the data is going to be where we think it's going to be. Okay. okay so, that's so that's maintaining that structure we were talking well, about, by, or it's enforcing it? It's setting it up to work. So step number two okay. on the Windows side is you want to consolidate your library, i.e., yeah, just what you were talking about. Move everything in if it's not there already. And you do that uh, in different versions of iTunes, do this differently. But in the current version, it's file, library, and then organize library. On that, you'll get a little screen up and one of the boxes will be consolidate library. Check that box and hit OK. Depending on how many files you have scattered elsewhere, this may take some time, but it's the only way that this is going to work. So do this. Then quit iTunes on your Windows machine. Now let's go over to the Mac. First things first, update to the very latest version of iTunes on your Mac. Just in case there is version incompatibility with your Windows side, you want to have a newer version on the Mac than you do on the Windows side. Better to have it exactly the same, but certainly newer is going to work. Mm-hmm. Then on the Mac, quit iTunes. Now, now we're going to get to exactly what you thought, John. You, you want to replace the entire contents of your Mac's iTunes folder, which is in Home Music. You don't want to add things to that folder. You want to replace the entire contents of it. So mm-hmm. either remove the folder or delete the contents of the folder on your Mac and then copy either that folder over or the contents of that folder over from your Windows machine. Once it's finished copying, launch iTunes on your Mac. If it was an older version on the Windows machine, you might see the little dialogue that says updating your iTunes library. Once that's done, you should be good to go. Now, uh, the question is, you know, the second part of the question from Derek here and, and from anyone is how do we get the data over for Derek's case? It's I hate to say this. This is another one of those things where or Derek's friend where it's so intuitive that you wouldn't know it uh, in VMware Fusion. You get your window up right with, you know, you, you run Windows in windowed mode. Don't run it in full screen mode. Run it in windowed mode. That's the easiest way to do this. And then. Uh, navigate to your my documents, my music uh, folder, and you'll see iTunes sitting right there. Grab that folder and drag it to your Mac's desktop. Just drag it out of the Windows window and put it on your Mac's desktop or drag it hmm. right into your Mac's music folder. And that's it. It's that simple. As long as you have installed what they call the VMware tools, which are the Windows add-ons that make Windows interact well with VMware. But chances are, if your friend's doing anything at all on VMware, he's already addressed that issue and installed the VMware tools because they, they kind of make it part of the process. So so that's that's that. For other people, 
you know, you could do it over a network. You could do it with a, a flash drive or a large, a large flash drive or a hard drive. Uh, you know, many different ways of getting data from, from two device, one device to another. But, uh, but that's, that's my, th- those are my thoughts, John. I'm, I'm with you, brother. Cool. All right. Then we move on. Oh, to, Tom to Tom. Oh, this is going to be a good philosophical perhaps, or a, oh, no, we got, we have an answer. Oh yeah, we definitely do. I think we have a couple of answers. And yes, the question is, Tom says, I know you like SSD drives. And I've been considering buying a new MacBook Pro. I would like to buy it with the SSD drive installed, but I'd like more than a 128 gigabyte drive and can't afford for the larger one. Can you recommend some options? Some that I've come up with are install an aftermarket drive myself, but I'd probably mess something up. Mm. Number two, use an external drive with the internal SSD drive, but I don't want to drag something else along with the laptop. Three, look into one of the new hybrid drives installation and a newer product. Uh, I know this is a simple question compared to the problems you usually help people with, but I appreciate your help. No, no, not, not it. Actually, we don't mind simple questions here and we're happy to answer them, but this one really isn't a simple question either. So uh, at least no, not, no, there's, we're not, there's a number of it, options. We're not going to let it stay a simple question. We'll, we'll confuse the heck out of this one. <laughs> so initially, Dave, I would say uh, the assumption I'm going to get from Tom is that he likes SSDs because as you've pointed out, no, I'm not, I'm not yet on the bandwagon. Right. Though I shall be. I know. Um, someday, yep. whether I like it or not. But SSD right. drives clearly offer uh, better performance. I mean, that's clear. Right. There's no debating that at a price, and that that's where the problem is. So SSD drives, for the most part, are, are going to perform better in read and write operations. So that's why he wants it. But then you, you got to pay for that. So, so what do you do if you want to try to balance performance versus versus uh, you know how much money you want to shell out and uh, and just the technology limitations because he's saying 128 and i think right now dave unless you want to spend tens of thousands of dollars a 128 or 256 gigabyte ssd is probably the largest that most consumers who who don't want to go broke are going to be willing to pay for yeah i think that's probably right um like the air the air right now i believe the air so they just introduced the air which is their flagship you know portable machine right. and i believe the largest you can get in that is 256 correct you can start with i think you can start with 64 go to 128 and then 256 because otherwise again i think the the cost of this technology is going to make it prohibitive correct so. yep yep and yeah you can get I'm, I'm just looking and i just picked owc because they they come to mind uh for ssds but you know their their mercury extreme pro ssd at a 240 gigabyte drive is uh five sixty nine and I don't mm. I don't think they're overpriced. I, I don't I don't recall them being overpriced on this stuff. So uh, you know it that gets pricey. Okay, so yeah, he, he mentioned a couple of options. I, I want to address his and then I know you've got yeah. one that one that he Well no I like I like the list. Well I like the list here. So one he's talking about installing a drive by himself. Now he's talking MacBook Pro. Right. As far as I know, the latest MacBook Pros, the Unibody enclosure. uh, Yeah, and I was going to say, the the class that you and I have, Dave, which is the early 2008 or late 2008, early 2008. Yeah, pre-Unibody. MacBook Pro. That, I would say, is a moderately... Don't do it. I've done it, you've done it, but it's not something I would recommend to a a newbie. 
I don't. That's not I insulting. I won't do it myself again. If I, okay, I might have. I to. did. I did, and I do it again. But it is a challenge. You got to keep your wits about you. Good. You got to keep track of all the screws. I only lost one. But um, yeah, that you machine made it, is. You made it more efficient. Yeah, because it runs with one less. Uh, you know. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, but but the the unibody machines, from what I've seen, and and I think Apple actually endorses this, is that you can take the bottom case off and uh, the you know futz with either the RAM or the hard drive thing is right there. So, if we're talking the latest release of machine that, that's a MacBook Pro, I don't, uh, I wouldn't be worried, and uh, as long as you follow good practices like keeping track of the screws and all that, and grounding yourself and all that. I would not be very concerned about messing things up with that class of machine. Right. All right. So that's, that's step. That, so, okay. So he can put one in now. Th- there's some questions over what to put in. I, I have not tested these yet, but the tests that I've seen, and he mentioned these hybrid drives are, are really good. Now the concept is that you've got a drive that has both a mechanical spindle the old kind, as well as uh, some amount of of uh, flash memory, solid state memory on the drive. Uh, again, I'm looking at OWC because that's where I was before. They've got a Seagate drive that's a 500 gig drive with four gigabytes of solid state memory on it. And you can get a kit, a do-it-yourself kit from them for 155 and this is a five giga, 500 gigabyte drive. So that's not so bad. Uh, and it, you know, with what I, what the point behind these is, this is a much larger cache, essentially a much larger, larger cache that you can read and write to. The drive manages everything. Your Mac doesn't need to know how the drive's doing what it's doing, but, uh, but it does make things significantly faster. And, and a lot of people have had a lot of luck with these. And of course, for the price, it's hard to argue. Uh, is the speed, you know, the overall speed the same as an SSD? No, but the uh, reading and writing tends to happen a whole lot faster than it does with a standard, with just a standard right. hard drive. So, so this is definitely something to consider. And, and, and if you're on a budget, uh, this is one of the paths I'd go. Uh, and, and, you know, test it out, Tom. Get, you'll you'll you know get one of these kits that has an external case because what you want to do is take whatever drive you get in there and I wouldn't order an SSD from Apple I'd just get whatever the smallest regular hard drive is they they'll sell you uh, but you know you're gonna want to take that out and you might as well be able to use it so get one of these kits that that has not only the drive but a case that you can use for the drive that you're taking out but put this drive in the case first and move your data over to it and make sure it runs well yes you're only going to be running over USB but as I said, when we back did our SSD thing a year ago, you know, when I was obsessing over it, uh, over, even over USB, I saw the speed increase immediately. So, so you will, you'll get a feel for, okay, is this, is this really going to make a difference for me or, or is it, uh, you know, is it not, not the path I want to go down? So that's, that's the hybrid thing. And then John, you've got another kind of another, uh, you know, another, another idea. I always have another idea. I know. <laughs> and we got to tell you what it is, Dave. And actually, I think one of our friends, uh, Don, has actually done this. I think he may actually, I don't know if he has a screencast on this, but I, but I think he did this. Okay. So one thing you may be thinking, wouldn't it be great if I could have more than one place in my machine to put a drive? And right now, pretty much the MacBook Pro series, you have a place to put a hard drive. 
And then you have a lot of space where they have an optical drive. Well, you know, I mean, especially with the air and all that, I mean, optical drives are so yesterday, Dave. That's right. Who wants to deal with that? And fortunately, there is a company, uh, MCE Tech, and they make something called an Octobay. And what does this do? It basically takes your optical drive bay and makes it into a hard drive bay. So here's another idea. So what you do is, uh, Tom, you get the SSD uh, where you put your system and, and things that you want to load quickly or, or save quickly, and that's going to be your workhorse. But then you may want to consider something like the OptiBay, and I do believe it works with the latest Macs. So there are different versions of it. Um, and maybe you want to get a larger mechanical drive. Like I just got a thing here, Dave, uh, actually a press release from a OW. Uh, apparently now there are one terabyte um laptop drives uh, slowly becoming available maybe they happen in the past but you know they're they're probably a little pricey um i'll have to look in the release uh, a little bit because i have the 500 when i got the 500 that you know that that meets my needs so maybe you want to try to double the capacity of your machine in that you're going to have kind of like the hybrid concept but you have an ssd and you have a mechanical drive and there you go because i think what what he what what he's concerned about is I won't have enough space because 128 gigs is, yeah, that's that's on the light side. It's tight. For me, I I think on my my portable drive right now where I keep my photo library and all that, I'm probably at about 300 gigs. So the 500 gig drive uh, does me for now. Got it. Got it. Cool. All right. Another. Oh, you do. Oh, one one more. Well, well, I think we we both do, Dave. but, But here's another option, though. I don't think it's quite ready for prime time yet. Um, You and I, of course, really like Dropbox. So what I'm going to suggest is that there, there, there is an option, though I think the problem right now is more with the cable, the networking infrastructure that, that's out there than the, what, what's available. But either iDisk or Drop, now Dropbox, the thing is Dropbox, of course, takes up space on your drive as well as having it in the cloud. iDisk, you can opt out of that. The only thing I'd suggest is that, you know, for if you're talking additional storage, you may want to consider an online solution. And I think there's more, you know, I mean, of, of course, MobileMe and all that and iDisk comes to mind, uh, as does Dropbox. There are other people that offer virtual, you know, web dev type disk services. I think the only thing that makes a lot of those not really practical or desirable, Dave, unless you want to sit around all night or let the machine run overnight, is that the upload speeds of most providers are limited versus the download speeds. Like, right. like with me, I was just publishing some, you know, photo libraries and I was limited to two megabits per second upload, which is effectively about 200K per second upload. And when you're talking, you know, pictures that are multiple megabytes, that, that can take a while. It so, things down. Yeah. So I think we're not quite there yet. I mean, once everybody has fiber in the house and... That's right. Maybe. I think that's about all I have to say about that. So, so there are a number of options. I, I like the hybrid option because I think it gives you the best of both worlds. It does. And, you know, this, check out the speed tests on it. Again, it's not going to be quite like a, a true ssd but it's going to be way better than than just a standard spindle so yeah check it out mm-hmm. it, you know the price certainly is right all right on to chuck hi this is chuck from boulder colorado have a project looking for a solution we'd like to uh put three screens tv or monitors up on flat screens up on our wall in the living room and have a constant running or almost constant running slideshow of our family and trips and so on, slowly changing, um, driven from our photo libraries, uh, and um, looking for how that might 
run what that might look like and how to coordinate that. And probably one more little detail, I'd like to be able to uh, <clears throat> turn it off when we leave, whether it's uh, through home automation and motion sensing that we're not in the home, or just flip a switch and then come back and turn it on and have it not like start over from the beginning, but pick up where it left off or maybe it was still just running with some part of the electronics turned off and, and some part still running. Um, so we don't get to see the same pictures time and time again. Uh, thanks. Looking for a solution. Bye-bye. Huh. This sounds very sci-fi. I, I want to visit Chuck's house once he gets this in place. But I first, wanna, we got to figure... <laughs> yeah, I want to visit now. It's, I mean, if he's thinking of doing this, I want to see what else he's got going on. Yeah. So to me, Dave, one thing is... I'm going to start with one possible solution, or, or just a thought, and, and I'll let you uh, 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 tear it apart. But yep. could I even, with any Mac, get three individual video outputs yes absolutely oh uh, so okay that was my one thought just get enough video cards and enough screens and there you go that's yeah, one solution and, and video cards is is correct in a in a sort of uh, general sense but it's a misnomer if let's say you wanted to do this with a mac mini okay where there are no slots into which you would put cards right well what you can do is there there's a there's this thing called the Vibook V I B O O K and there's others like it it is a USB display interface uh, and hmm. it acts just like a video card and it uses USB to connect your computer to a display i've got one of these here i've used it with my macbook pro it's fast uh, it's worked really really well and uh, you know it's it's definitely a something to consider when when setting up when setting something up like this, because you probably don't want to use, uh, you know, a, a, a Mac Pro into which, of course, you could just slide, you know, as many video cards as you can find slots uh, that that's not going to that's that's not going to be the economical answer. And I, I realize that what Chuck's trying to do is not necessarily an economical thing anyway. His his you know, his his goals are not rooted in find me the cheapest way to do this, because by definition, I mean, this is sort of a. a a luxurious process and that's okay. That's a good thing. Uh, so, so yeah, you know, Vibook or, or one of the things like it, USB video adapter is, is the key to making this work with a quote unquote cheaper Mac, like a Mac mini. Now you could use an older Mac mini to do this. I mean, you don't need a ton of horsepower, uh, to, to make something like this work. Now, as far as software goes, uh, but you know, you're still spending several hundred dollars on, on the Mac mini, and then, you know, another couple of hundred bucks on, on, a, on more of these adapters to make it work. The question is, will iPhoto support multiple screens? And, and my experience is that, yes, it will. Uh, so you can have a slideshow running across multiple screens that way. Um, so that that's one answer to this. But I've got another answer, John. Excellent. OK, so, you know, we're going to spend a couple hundred bucks on this Mac mini, right? Or whatever Mac he's going to use to do it. And then, uh, you know, a hundred bucks a piece or so figure on these, on two more of these wire, uh, uh, USB to video adapters. So, you know, we're, we're in this for, you know, probably not less than 500 bucks and maybe, you know, more like 800, right? Cause Mac minis aren't as cheap as they used to be, but something else is cheap and it's built to connect to a TV and it's called the Apple TV and it's a hundred bucks. Mm. So go get three of them. Pump three different, you know, chop your photo library up into three different uh, segments so that you don't have, you know, the chance of the same photo showing up on, on the same Apple TV. 
and just use those Apple TVs to uh, to blast the photos up. There's 300 bucks and you're done. I mean, you got to buy the TVs, but you were going to do that anyway, Chuck. So uh, so that that's, you know, and it it's simple elegance there. It limits what you can do with this. You know, you're not going to be using it as a to stream, you know, stock quotes from your Mac because now the Apple TV is limited in functionality and, and that sort of thing. But yeah. uh, but if if truly all you want is pictures, then I, I'd go get three Apple TVs and forget about it. That's OK. Yeah, because I would think the the it sounds like the desire is can I do this from one computer, mm-hmm. and that's cool. But actually, I was thinking front row, maybe. Oh yeah, that mm-hmm. work. Yep, on individual Macs. Uh, those you suggested, you're going to have to segment your library, and uh, I don't know if I'd want to do that. If I'm if I'm building the, you know, house of the future with the three screen, right? You know. <laughs> That's slideshow. Right. Yeah, you want one. <laughs> I don't thing want to, to deal with it. that nastiness. That's yeah, right. that's right. So, uh, and and there are other things, Dave. I I think uh, you know I was poking around here. I didn't find something exactly right, but like Griffin, and I think some other companies offer something similar, which is a device that basically makes your computer, whatever it is, think that there are multiple options, or, or no, there are multiple options for a display. So, right, right. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you, yeah, yeah. So, all right, cool. Uh, let's talk about our third sponsor, John, and then we'll and then we'll talk about Mickey's question. All right, and that is Citrix with GoToAssist Express. And what GoToAssist Express is is a way for you to be able to control another computer that's not in your house. Imagine this: you're a consultant. I know there's a lot of you out there that that. Uh, either officially or unofficially, are the uh, go-to geek, if you will. The reasonable and trusted geek of choice for uh, for many of your family and friends. And if you are the Ratgock, which is the reasonable and trusted geek of choice, then you're going to want a way to not have to play the operator game. And we all, we've all been there on one side of the conversation or another where you're trying to communicate something over the phone and some person's playing the eyes and the person on the other end is playing, you know, the, the, the hands. And it's like, okay, tell me what you see. Click what I tell you. It can be a very frustrating process and a slow process. This is where go to assist express makes life really easy for you. What you do as the consultant or the rat gawk, if you will, is you log into a web interface and you create a new session And it's going to give you a little URL and you take that URL and you give it to the person on the other end. Now they have installed no extra software whatsoever. You can email it to them. You can read it to them over the phone. They type in the URL, put in the URL, visit the URL. And it asks them, do you want to let so-and-so into your computer? And if they say yes, it lets you in. You have full control with your mouse, your keyboard. They can see what you're doing. They can stop you at any time if they if they so choose. But now you don't have to play the operator game. Now you get to see exactly what shows up on the screen. You get to make all the choices you want to make. You get to click the buttons you want to click. Life is good. This is go to Assist Express. You can get 30 days free on us. Go to assist.com slash gab. That's go to assist.com slash gab. Gets you 30 days free. Go to Assist Express from Citrix. All right. Mickey has hmm. a question. Okay. 
Mickey says, I want to take advantage of two Macs with folder sharing turned on, but I think I took the wrong approach. I copied some folders from Mac A's to Mac for Mac A to Mac B's public folder. Upon trying to read on Mac B, I don't have permissions to do so. Another thought I had was to try to copy Mac A to Mac A's public folder and then have Mac B mount Mac A's public folder and copy there to from there to Mac B's drive. Either way I tried, I first had to change the permissions so that one Mac or the other could read or write. I think I'm doing something wrong and I want some help. Okay. So, yeah, you you th- there are easier ways to do this. If you want to share file, the the the, the goal here is to share files mm-hmm. Uh, for, from one Mac to another that are where both Macs are on the same network. So I don't blame him, Dave, because I'm going to say when I'm looking at the sharing of system preference under both of my systems here, if you click on file sharing, one of the first items that it shows you in the shared folders is something called username public folder. Right. <clears throat> and I think that's where he tripped up because this, I believe, is a default and the problem is the, 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 the way they use the word public, I think, is incorrect because it causes problems. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the idea here or what I would do in Mickey's situation is I would go on and, again, uh, just like you said, John, go into system preferences, sharing. Make sure first that the file sharing checkbox is checked. You may have to click mm-hmm. the little lock in the corner and type your password before you can make this change. But that's what you need to do first. Once file sharing is on now uh, in Leopard and Snow Leopard. So Mac OS 10.5 and later, you can decide what folders are going to be shared. And I would create a folder that is shared or that you want to be shared and then click the plus button uh, under shared folders and add that folder to it. Navigate there, highlight it and add it. You can then add users to that folder, uh, and I would do that because this way life is so much easier. And you can decide how many, uh, what privileges you want them to have. And, of course, in your case, it sounds like you want whatever user you have on Mac A to have read and write access to whatever folder you share on Mac B and vice versa. Now, if you have the same username between the two machines, so for example, for me, I have Dave on my iMac and Dave on my MacBook Pro, uh, I don't need to create another user for sharing. But if you, say, want to share from your wife's, you know, if you want to give your wife access to your machine or a family member or an office, you know, co-office, co-mingling, whatever they do nowadays mm. in the offices. But yeah. anyway, if you want to give somebody else access, create them an account on your Mac. That way you don't have to give away your password uh, so that they can access data on your machine. Add that user and uh, and you should be good to go. And now that you've controlled read and write access, now you've got a way that uh, that you can actually access this data. Right. I, th- I think the key here, Dave, is that the uh, whatever is put in there as a default when you share. Uh, so I think the key here and why I think he ran into trouble was when you look at the shared folder, you will see to the right of it a list of users and what rights they have. And I think those rights by default are restrictive unless you're the owner of the account. Right. So the other, the other key would be look at the folder that is being shared, click on shared folders. And then when you see the users column, 
Well, there's a little plus sign there. And if there's any user there, like, for example, the user that you're going to log into the machine as. Yep. Add that and give it read and write. I think the problem right now is that uh, looking at the list here, Dave, there are three different options for each user for a shared folder. There's read, write, there's read only. And then what I think we just ran into write only paren Dropbox. Yes. And I think that's, that's where the, the, so, so I think the default way that this is set up may not necessarily, I mean, the thing is you can go on a network and you can see this and say, Oh, that's a great place for me to throw stuff. But then <laughs> you're scratching your head saying, well, how the heck do I get to it? Because I even looked on my machine, Dave, and there are, you know, I have a couple of other users on my machine. And if I try to get to the Dropbox folder, it says, no, you don't have any privileges here. And I'm like, what? Right. Right. Well, that's because it wasn't explicitly defined. So, so I'm with them. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's not the, the most straightforward uh, thing. Uh, I think as you suggested, you know, the best thing is, you know, try to log in as a registered, you know, share it as a, you know, admin, maybe a, as an admin user, would you think? Well, you have to be an admin user to create the share in the first right. place. But but then, no, you don't have to be an admin. You do not have to give this person, you know, anything more than standard user privileges on your machine. You just need mm -hmm. to create them an account, which is done, right. again, in system preferences, but this time in the account system preferences. Create them a normal user account. Can even I think it can even be a kid's account. It doesn't, you know, it, it can be a limited account. Just make sure you give that account account access to that specific shared folder in the sharing preference pane, and now you're good to go. So yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the love right there. Okay, cool. Right. And now I think Dave, yeah, we got follow up. We got so. uh, we have, and we're not going to get to them all here. Uh, yeah, we got, always have too much. <laughs> we do, and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, okay, so we talked about Chuck having trouble emptying the trash last show and or last week rather. And so Ray's got uh, Ray's got an idea here. This is Ray in California calling regarding MacGab 293. Uh, you were answering a question from Chuck about problems emptying the trash. Uh, you cover everything real well, except for one point, which might have been relevant. Um, a user can have more than one trash. Uh, you talked about the home folder trash. There's also another trash for each mounted volume, um, locally mounted volume. That uh, could be relevant in this case if something is stuck in one of those. Um, one way to check would just be to uh, unmount all those and take out any USB mounted drives, um, SD cards, that sort of thing, and see if the problem persists. Um, the way I found out about this is that um, managing photos on SD cards, I'd drag them in the trash and forget to empty the trash before I took the SD card out. I put it in the camera and it would still be full. Um, so that might be relevant to this problem. Um, thank you for all the great shows. And to paraphrase a great geek, get caught not. <laughs> all right. So what? I know Ray, well, he was, he was, uh, you know, going all Yoda on us there. Uh, ah, right. You are. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, or you go there, but that's not the same thing. Anyway, if you could not understand Ray, I know his audio was a little bit uh, tough to decipher there. The point is, yes, there are on external drives or every drive has its own trash can. And this is so that you're not copying files. If you have something on an external drive and you throw it away again, as we talked about last week, the trash can is just a another folder. It's a hidden folder and it's a bit special, but it is just another folder. So all that's happening when you throw something away is it moves to the trash folder. 
Well, you don't want to have to, if you have an external drive, it doesn't make any sense to move it to the trash folder on another drive, right? Because now you're copying the file and that's crazy. So as Ray points out, there are trash cans or trash folders on every drive. And it's possible that uh, in Chuck's case, he did have an external drive connected and that that's where the trash problem was. So yeah, ejecting all external drives and then seeing where your trash uh, situation is, was at least a good step in the troubleshooting process. All right. Uh, one last thing from Michael here, you know, we talked mm. about, well, go ahead. No, no, yeah, I'm okay. He's getting into an interesting area, but I think we can keep the discussion brief. Yeah, we, we can absolutely. Yeah, no, this is, this will be a, a, a very, a very brief thing. Uh, so Michael, was the one who started the conversation that we talked about last week about DNS and how domain name lookups were working properly on windows machines at someone's house, but not their Macs. And I mentioned that I had seen this problem uh, when I was on charter as my ISP and that uh, Michael was talking about this problem happening again on charter as, uh, as, as the ISP on the affected computers, Michael wrote back and said it seems that Charter's DNS servers are not compatible with the IPv6 protocol. Uh, Goodness, Dave, I must interject. What is IPv6? Okay, I'm going to I'm actually going to. And I know what it is, but but, but, I'm going to hold your question back and I'm going to tell people how to solve this problem if they see it. Then we're going to talk briefly about IPv6 and then I got to get out of briefly. Yeah, good. good. So uh, He's right. There is this other type of thing that we're going to talk about here that your Mac by default will support. But uh, and I, I did not try this when I had my problems with with Charter, but it would not surprise me in the least if this was exactly because I ran into exactly the same symptoms. So uh, go into system preferences, network, and then highlight your network connection, either Ethernet or airport. Go to advanced And then on the TCP IP tab, you will see an option that reads configure IPv6, capital I and P, lowercase v, and then, of course, just the number six. And by default, this is going to be set to automatically. There are two other options, manually and off. Turn it off, hit OK, and your problems, if you have them, will be solved. Now, John. Wow. Let's awesome. Let's talk about what this is. Right, briefly, because I, I know. So, so again, I was kind of leading you on. But from what I recall, Dave, we are right now, for, for the most part, the Internet or people on the Internet operate using IP version 4. Correct. And I don't know what happened to 5. I, I'd be very interested, but then... Oh, we don't. We, we don't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, go on. So, right now, we're all operating on IPv4, which is basically 4... Numbers separated by dots or four octets, right? Which is four values of two to the eighth, which can go from zero to 255. And that's how, you know, if you've seen an IP address, it's it's pretty familiar. And that's IPv4. So what is IPv6, Dave? What what, what problem is it solving? It adds more addresses. So, yeah, IPv4, uh, it has 32 bits, right? Whereas IPv6 uses a 128-bit address which means it supports, you know, way, way like gobs more uh, uh, IP addresses. 
So what are you saying? Are we, uh, could IPv4 be running out of addresses, Dave? That's the, uh, that's the description. In fact, some people say that we've already run out. Uh, and that we're, you know, but, but but we're recycling the ones that have, you know, stopped being used. Now, th- there's some debate on that. But but the reality is that, yes, we could and we're we're closer to running out than not. Uh, we, we've either passed it or we haven't passed the fact that, you know, the point where we where we've run out. But but we are either right there or close. So uh, it's possible that in our lifetimes, John, we will see a situation where, you know, especially now that we've got, you know, how many IP addresses could I be responsible for here? Uh, I've got, you know, a couple of iPhones, the iPod touch, uh, you know, a bunch of Macs, a router, a windows machine, you, you know, 10, okay. maybe, I don't know. And I'm, and I'm with you on that though. Yeah. The, the only reason I don't think the IPv4 thing is as much of a concern as some people point out and I think this this is the the key piece of technology is what we call NAT, Dave, well, which is there's... I as an individual. So I have one IP address assigned by my ISP. Right. And there go the cops. Anyways, I don't know if you heard that. So um, <laughs> oh, they heard me talking about IP addresses. That's right. Um, but right now I have one IP address, Dave. But then what I do is through NAT, I have these non-routable addresses. So I have six devices or however many so i got my macbook i got this machine i got the tivo i got this and that so they're taking up ip addresses but they're not part of the global ipv4 space right but then i guess there's only so far you can go with that before you do run out of the ipv4 yeah i mean it you know this problem has been uh has been discussed uh for a long time and and it's and that is certainly one of the things that helps to keep that away. This network address translation, which allows us to do just what John John said. I mean, and I'm doing it here too. You know, I mentioned that I've got probably a dozen dev- IP devices here, uh, maybe even more now that I think about printers and TiVos and all that other stuff. Maybe I've got twenty of them here, but I only use one IP address because my router gets one real IP address and then creates a phony network of IP addresses that it shares. Uh, that's one solution. The other is virtual hosts on the internet. For example, MacObserver.com, MacGeekGab.com, and BackbeatMedia.com, among others, all resolve to the same IP address. But your wow. web browser knows to request when it visits that IP address. If I tell it to go to MacObserver.com, uh, the browser requests MacObserver.com from the server. And the server's smart enough to to serve up MacObserver.com, not MacGeekGab.com, not BackbeatMedia, even though they all resolve to the same IP address. Hmm. Now, if you try to visit that IP address in your browser, you'll get a list. You'll just get a default thing saying, hey, you, you got to tell me what you, you know, what you want to see. So uh, so that's that, you know, there, there's there's lots of different creative ways that have been instituted over the years to help limit our need to have one IP address per resource, if you will. But, uh, but yeah, so we might be running out, but we haven't, well, whether we have or not, we're not using IPv6 yet. So you're safe to turn it off on your Mac. And I always turn it off on all of mine. Uh, I I guess I'd seen other problems over the years that I thought, well, maybe, you know, I don't need, I certainly don't Mm -hmm. need it. So I'm just going to kill it. I don't want to, you know, who knows? I use funky router firmware and all that stuff. The last thing I want to do is blast some IPv6 request at, uh, you know, a device that doesn't understand it and cause all sorts of grief. I think it was in a hotel 
where where I ran into some IPv6 problem. And no, I did too. Uh, yeah. It was not at this show, but the last show when Allison actually sat down a bit but next to me at one point and said, "I can't get onto this, uh, you know, right. this uh, the, the trade show Wi-Fi network." And I'm like, "Huh?" And so I started digging through and. Yeah, I came upon the uh, upon the screen that you talked about, Dave, and I think it was set. I think the default in uh, Mac OS X is automatic IPv6. I'm like, you know what? Because I looked at my computer and it was off. So I said, you know what? Let, let's be the same. Turn off your IPv6. Everything worked great. So I guess some networks either get confused or just they're not ready for, I, I mean, you, you would think they should say, no, nah, I don't get this, man. But <laughs> Right, right. All right. Uh, All right. I think it's uh, I think it's time. It's time for. We want to tell yeah. you how to contact us. Yes, we said that you help write the show, but you can't write mm-hmm. it if you can't write in. So you can write in to feedback at macgeekgab.com. Yeah, you know I don't really like that option, Dave. I'd, I'd much rather write into feedback at macgeekgab.com. And you said feedback at macgeekgab.com. You can send text, you can send images, you can send videos, you can send really anything you want. Send us cupcakes. We love cupcakes. Two zero six 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 geek is four three three five. And I stole your thunder on that, John. Let's try it again. Two zero six 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 geek, which John is four three three five. That's right. With a uh, cupcake. With a cupcake. That's right. Uh, or you can visit the show notes at macgeekgab.com, which is the same IP address as macobserver.com, but that's not important right now. And how would you know that the notes come out, Dave? Well, you'd probably be following one of our Twitter accounts, and one of them is macgeekgab. Surprise. There's also John Efron, which is me, Dave Hamilton, which is you, Dave, and Pilot Pete, which is Pilot Pete, who's far around somewhere, no doubt. I'm sure he Or is. Mac Observer, if you want to follow just... What's happening in the Mac world? Follow Mac Observer all on Twitter. That'll do it. All right, let's uh, let's get out of here. And uh, I, I, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but our podcasting schedule is going to get a little funky in November. I've got some uh, family stuff going on that's going to totally wreck my schedule. So, uh, so I'll apologize in advance, but we will work to get the shows out when we can get them out. So, thanks, folks, and we'll uh, we'll catch you on the other side. Have a good week. <laughs> I'm Other side see, of what? Off to see fish tonight. Again? Yeah, number four. And fourth time in a week, and then we're done until December. I was going to say, it's wow. Been, it's been a good run. It's been fun. Smoky, though. Well, it's a fish concert. What do you want? I know those people at fish concerts. And you know what, Dave? What's that? I think, in general, they don't get caught. Let's hope so. Made up.